This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All of those injuries and all of those situations where I've had to dig deep, you know, has taught me far more than the times that I've stood on the podium with my arms in the air. That is Olympic cyclist Rachel Nalen. And this is episode 170 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 170 of the show with Rachel Nalen. She is a cyclist. She's an Olympian. She's magnificent. She's on Twitter at R-A-C-H-N-E-Y-L-A-N, at Rach Nalen, R-A-C-H-N-E-Y-L-A-N. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of the show. Uh, Thank you to everybody at Patreon who supports the show. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And there are a few people that are involved in making this show. And I like to pay them because they're excellent at what they do. You can support this show for as little as five bucks a month at patreon.com slash osher. Uh, That's like one fancy cup of coffee once a month. That'll go to making sure this show comes to you each and every week. If you're a fan of the show, if you like the show, if I'm able to bring you some value to your week, please consider throwing a couple of shekels our way. The money goes straight to Andy, my producer, and Rachel uh, and Haley, my um, production coordinator. Um, and that just about covers the money that they uh, they deserve, rightly, for helping me uh, make this show happen each and every week. If you do support for as little as five bucks a month, you can put more, 100, 200, 400, 
five will get you access to exclusive episodes, another which I'm recording on Monday, and I hope to have turned around quick sticks. Uh, thank you very much to everyone that's put a podsy up this week, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. That is a picture taken with the phone you're listening to this on of what you're looking at while you're listening, okay? It might be the view, it might be the cat, it might be walking the dogs, uh, it could be... Uh, what did I get this week? Oh, I got a great one from Geelong this week. It could be you on the back of the bike, uh, which is one I'll talk about in just a moment. Wherever you're listening to the show right now, whip out your phone, shoot us a picture, and tag me uh, P-O-D-S-I-E, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E, and throw it to us on Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or email me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Uh, big shout out to Rob who sent us a podsy this week from the Martyr Hospital in Brisbane. Uh, Rob was riding his bicycle, got hit by a, a ute, broke his back, which is shit. Um, but he uh, thankfully can still walk. I can't even fucking believe I have to say that. But thankfully he can still walk. And um, he was listening to the show. So, Rob, big love to you, mate. Get well very, very soon. And please uh, just remember, just past cyclists like they're a slow car. Move right into the other lane. It's really really that easily just just remember cyclists are not deliberately making you late because not everyone can afford a car not everyone can take the bus sometimes people like me just need to ride so our brains stop fucking yelling at us all day because that works just pass them like a car it'll take you 10 extra seconds you've got 10 extra seconds but they don't have another life to live so please 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 pass cyclists like they're a car and remind other people to do it when you're a passenger. Uh, particular, I had to do it to an Uber driver this week. It's like, wait, 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 <laughs> give him a whole lane, bro. Uh, so, Rob, get well soon, mate. Thank you so much for listening. It's been an intense few weeks. It's been an exciting few weeks for me as someone who used to be unemployed. Been in uh, Brisbane, Melbourne, South Africa, and Sydney in the last eight days, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but that's a lot of travel. And uh, a big thanks to everyone that helped me make the last week happen. There was a lot of people that went out of their way to make sure I could make the podcast, make Bondi Rescue happen, make the radio happen, make the telly happen. There's a lot of people that have been working very hard to help me do what I do, um, especially uh, that'll be Will and Trav and Haley and Leah and Lauren and uh, a bunch of other people. This is uh, now one of two podcasts that I am doing on the regular. Uh, there's another one over at Mamma Mia, uh, which is an Australian, uh, the Australian Women's Network. Uh, Mamma Mia is uh, a really interesting uh, media platform, uh, primarily uh, based in uh, blogging and texting, text at first, and now has branched out into a, a formidable podcast empire. And um, I remember me and Mia talking about putting a show together, and uh, early in this show, this one, this one right here, I interviewed a psychologist by the name of Leanne Hall. And um, I always wanted to do a, an advice, a relationship advice pro, uh, program with Leanne Hall. And so I went to Mia about it and I said, this is a, you know, I'd love to do a podcast with you. And she said, we'd love to do an advice podcast. And I said, well, I've got just the person. And away we went. And now that podcast is called Love Life. And last week it was the number one podcast in the health category on iTunes Australia, which is pretty amazing for our second weekend. So pop over there, have a listen. It's in the they've got an app, the Mamma Mia podcast app, but it's also in whatever app you're listening to this on. Just search for Love Life. There's a few people that have called their show that, but ours is the one with me and my glasses and a flano on it. And the artwork is pink and it's great. You can find it in iTunes. I won't stop making this podcast, I absolutely promise. But 
that's a show over there that allows me to do things that I otherwise can't do here, if that makes sense. So to check in with you, uh, this week's been good. We're almost into March, which is bananas how quickly the, the year's been going. Um, like I said, I got down to Melbourne and I was able to catch up with my brother and his partner. It's my brother's birthday, so it was so wonderful to see see those guys. Um, Melbourne, I love you. Melbourne, can I come and stay one time? Is that okay? Can I just can I graduate from just coming and having sleepovers to actually, you know, just being? Can we be lovers, please, Melbourne? Please, you really are wonderful. We ate dinner at the Veggie Bar on Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, which is uh, it's been around for ages. It's like the one of the landmark veggie places in Australia, I think. It's been there for ages, but good lord, they make good food, and they've got a luxa that's absolutely to die for. Oof. So good. Now, I don't know if it's the jet lag, which has been formidable this week, coming back from South Africa, or the radio, or both, but I've had to have a bloody long, hard look at myself when it comes to my relationship with those around me. I have thankfully had to learn, unfortunately the hard way, but I had to learn that if I have a problem with someone else, it's probably within me that the problem sits. And, you know, sometimes you, I don't like it, that I'm the one that has to change my perception of what's happening. Sometimes I want other people to change so I feel better, but that's not how the world works. Um, I had to really have a look at my role, in what role my perception of others around me is playing in my reaction to them. My mentor would say, the, the age-old question he asks me all the time, what happened and what did you make it mean? Think about that. What happened and what did you make it mean? Now, it could be, what happened? I missed the bus. What did you make it mean? Buses are fucked. What's the truth? I was late. You know, we can look at it two ways. But what have I got? My responsibility lies in how late I was for the bus. So what happened? What did you make it mean? Now, because I can't know what someone else actually meant to say or meant to do, I can only place value on their action or their words. And I've seen that too often what I've been doing is I've been preloading and prejudging and preloading my bias with things that I've been hearing. Does that make sense? Preloading the things that I've been hearing with bias. That's more like it. That's what I should be saying. Preloading the things that I've been hearing with bias. So I'm already deciding which filter what the person's going to say to me is going to pass through, if that makes sense. And it's just a shitty way of dealing with people because through my reaction to my own perception... All right? So I've believed someone has said something. Like, they've said whatever they've said. I've heard it as something else. My reaction then happens, and then they react as if the thing they said was the thing they said, which fucking manifests my own bullshit into reality. Does that make sense? And suddenly it's real, and I've justified myself like a fuckhead. It's not a great way to be. It's not a fair way to deal with people. They don't deserve that. So I'm just trying to deal with that and the reasons why I do such a thing this week. So that's it's been it's been happening everywhere. It's been happening at work. It's been happening at home. Yeah. But all this stuff then leads me to you know have a look inside and look at myself. And part of that is like looking at the medic. Oh, I want to blame the medication that I'm on because I take medication every day. I want to blame the meds. It's you know stifling me. It's turning me into a zombie. And it's the uh, it's the ancient. Uh, the ancient, ancient, ancient problem with psychiatric medications. It's benefits versus side effects. 
It's benefits versus side effects. So I've got an appointment with my psychiatrist coming up. He's the mechanic. My psychologist is a navigator. And um, I'm going to talk to him about what I can maybe do with my dose. Maybe, you know, I'll let him know what's been happening and, and see if there's something to do with my with my dose. But then the bloody balancing act begins again, you know. At what cost? Like I said, it's benefits versus side effects. So I'm taking these drugs and here's a side effect. But at, at, is it a cost that I'm prepared to live with for not? losing my fucking mind is it a cost that i'm prepared to live with so i can work every day and get out of the house talk to people look people in the eye is it a cost i'm willing to pay so that i can deal with the world around me without being utterly paralyzed by fear many times a day with the feeling that all of my sphincters are going to prolapse simultaneously each time i'm triggered which was happening 10, 20 times a day. And it was, I couldn't live. I couldn't do anything. Do I want to go back to that? No. Is what's happening good right now? No. Is there a balance somewhere between? Fuck, I hope so. I hope so. But talking to other people helps. Talking to other people on meds helps. I've been doing a bit of that. I know enough of that. You know, I know enough to, to call up other people and say, hey, do you find this? What can I talk to you about this? This is what's happening. You know, because I'm doing it. I think I'm doing it a bit tough this week because things are actually really good. I'm happy to be married. I'm so happy to be married. <laughs> I'm so happy to be married. My wife, and I love calling her that, my wife is just a wonderful human being. She's beautiful. She's funny. She's insightful. She's kind. She's wise. Being a stepfather is a, a glorious and rewarding experience that comes with a new challenge every day. And that's a new learning every single day. So that never gets boring. But back in my head, the way back in my head, there's a quiet thought that's like, things are great, man. Things are good. You're back at work. Got a house. Kid's great. Wife's great. Just have a beer. Just have a beer. Come on, just have one. It'll be great. Come on, it's a hot day. Crack a beer. You remember what that tastes like. That tastes great. So I'm fantasizing, I'm romanticizing about what it would be like to drink again. Conveniently, of course, forgetting the chaos that actually happens when I drink. Because as, as you know, as I've talked about on the show before, I'm in recovery. I haven't had a drink in nearly seven years. And like many other people in my position, I've spent some time around others who are also in my position, who help each other with a way of living that allows me not to drink or use today. And through that group of people, I'm very thankful to have exactly the same problem said back at me. I've heard someone talk about that. So when it happens to me, I'm like, oh, that's what that person was talking about that time. When things are going great, when you get married and everything's awesome and you feel wonderful about the world, that's when it hits you. That's when it hits you. It's not when everything's terrible. It's when everything's great. That's when the shit goes down and you start thinking that it's a great idea to have a drink again. So thankfully I know, do anything but don't do that. Why am I telling you this? Because it feels better to tell it than not tell it. But today, just today, I might feel different about it next week. But it feels better to tell you than to not tell it. Because today, it's, that's all I'm doing. I'm just doing today until bedtime. That's it. I'm not doing the rest of my life. I'm just doing today until bedtime. That's it. Because that's all we do. We just do today until bedtime. 
sorry, that got kind of heavy. Shit. Bloody 15 minutes in and we haven't even got to the guest. Let me have a drink. Oh, Sydney tap water. You are fantastic. Let me tell you about my guest today. Rachel Nayland is a professional cyclist and she is a part of the Orica Scott team. Travels all over the world, getting paid to ride bikes very, very well. She's an Olympian. She's a silver medalist at the World Championships. She's very driven and a very fascinating human being. Rachel came over to this house uh, just before Christmas, November, something like that. She and, she and I uh, got in touch and initially because she reached out over Twitter. She sent me a podsy, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. She sent me a podsy from behind her handlebars with the Sugarloaf Mountain of Rio de Janeiro in the background saying, I'm out for a training ride. I'm over here with the Olympic squad, really excited about the Olympics, listening to the show, and I freaked out. I was so excited that she listened to the show and that I was a part of that experience for her. So we chatted over Twitter. I said, look, you've got to come on the show. When you get back, come back, come on the show. So she came around. We had a great chat. But we had a chat that was so engaging and so interesting in the subjects that we did talk about. We didn't end up talking about her going to the Olympics. The biggest thing to have happened to her possibly in her career at that point. Occasionally, as an interviewer, I get so caught up in the conversation that the ground we're covering is so engaging Sometimes it's as good a story as a thing that that person is, is known for. I texted Rachel afterwards. Look, I'm really sorry. I didn't even talk about the Olympics. I'm so sorry. And she responded that it was, in fact, a relief to not have to talk about Rio again. And I guess when you're an athlete of that profile, that's a common question and you have to answer that question a lot and it has to take you over certain hit points that the um, story covers and... Part of that story is uh, Rachel's father passed away at the start of 2016. So for whatever reason, we didn't go there. But when the chat was over, I didn't feel that I'd missed out on anything. I don't know. I certainly didn't feel out feel that I'd missed out on getting an authentic connection with Rachel. And I hope you don't feel the same way. But if you'd like to know in greater detail about Rachel's path to the Olympics, there's a great SBS article, uh, which you can read online. I'll put a link in the in the notes. So if you go to this show and you click on the more information in whatever podcast app you've got, there's a link down in the description. Just click on that. You read it. So Rachel came to our humble apartment here in Bronte. Uh, the first time I've had an Olympian in this house, which is always a thrill. I, Olympians, there's something about them. They have this thing that I really enjoy. They have a drive about them that's really fascinating. So come on to my kitchen table and sit on my, my nerdy Eames chairs, which feels super nice when you sit in them, by the way, and enjoy a cup of tea with Rachel Nalen. Welcome to my kitchen. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. So, yeah, we just, we, we just moved in about two and a half, three weeks ago. So maybe three weeks ago we moved in. Have you started? Two weeks ago I fired the wedding planner. Well, I, we, but I made the call. We're getting married in a fortnight and just before you got here I was busily trying to rustle up cool rooms for uh, the south coast to arrive sometime on the... On well, the I know a fair bit about the south coast, so maybe I can... Maybe we should talk about weddings. Maybe I could step in. <laughs> 
Step in as a wedding planner. Oh, it's been bananas. It's been bananas. There's a lot of stress about weddings, isn't there? And moving. Moving wow. house and wedding. Well, I know a lot about, I know a fair bit about the South Coast and I've had a lot of friends go through weddings, so. That happens. <laughs> this is my second one. It's my second time. <laughs> Low key. <laughs> Just have a party. That's what it's about. Well, we're on, we're celebrating out. love. Yeah, yeah, but it's just about because the place we're hiring is just it's a paddock, so it's every it's like toilets. Oh, but the toilets need power to pump. Oh, we need water to get into the toilets. Oh, we need somewhere where the grey water has to go. We have need somewhere where the sewage has to go. We have to pump it. Like, you know what I mean? It's not just yeah. It's complicated <laughs> to say the least. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. What'd you do this morning? You were training. Training, yeah. I thought you were in the off-season. A- as athletes do. No, pre-season. Pre-season. Off-season is October. What, pre-season, is, <laughs> pre-season is definitely. November the 1st, generally, you start to get back into the gym and back onto the bike and so what did this start morning to prepare. Like? Um, this morning I had a physio appointment, a bit of, you know, panel beating, a bit of um, you know, muscle release work and just working on some some refiring, some making sure that everything's aligned and refined and optimised and um, and then I had a gym session. So, yeah, and then I got in the car and drove over. Battle traffic. Drove, oh, yeah. Look, I love, I love Sydney. You know, I'm born and bred here and it's just the most amazing city in the world. But it has... Woefully under-infrastructed. Woefully uninfrastructed, yes. And woefully under-resourced when it comes to public transport. Absolutely. Mass transit options. Although I've started catching ferries around and I love that. If you're lucky yeah. enough to be somewhere. On the, on the river. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good mode of transport. It's actually a lot quicker. To get out to home, which, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, bouncing between Olympic Park and the city and, you know, things like that. But it's, it's – I'm really lucky because I found this hub where I can have my day job or my, you know, six, five and a half days a week down in the southern highlands which is just the most underrated part of Australia. It's just, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And so I, I like the generally Mittagong, Barrel, Fitzroy Falls, Kangaroo Valley, Berry. I bounce around there for five and a half days a week and then come up to Sydney for my, for my fix of family, friends and fun and, you know, um, gym session and physio and that sort of thing and then wow. go and get lost in the highlands for the rest of the time. Oh, so, I wish. Yeah, it's it's worked really well since I've come back since I come back from Adelaide. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, Europe is home, home, home for nine months a year. Yeah, but in Australia, I've yeah, I've, I feel lucky that I've found that little um, niche down there. I got asked this morning to fill out a thing for uh, Daily Telegraph. They wanted to know which is the Murdoch paper here in Sydney. Um, some would say it's a conservative paper. Others would say it's a right-wing paper. Others would say it's an extreme paper. I don't know what you want to say. Um, but they, were, they asked me, like, what's your favourite Christmas memory? And I, it's still when I was seven and I got my first two-wheeler, my first bike, my first BMX. So this time of year for me is always like, oh, yeah, I remember that, that freedom of a kid when you get that first bike. Was that your first bike a Christmas bike? Was it, do you remember when your first bike was? I think it was a second-hand old steel frame thing that mum and dad got from a God knows where. (laughs) 
And we used to go down to, speaking South Coast, we used to go down to Jeroa and my grandparents had a caravan at a caravan park. I think the first time I stayed in a hotel with them at the age of 15 or 16 when I went on an athletics trip. But we just used to tear around this caravan park on bikes every school holidays. Um, Bikes, rollerblades, you know, swimming, running around just, you know, from dawn till dusk. And that... That's probably my earliest bike memories is is just this old steel frame, nothing flash. I think it was probably like three times the weight of that I was. I was a bit of a scrawny little thing, and um, yeah, we we lived in we lived on a road that was um, wasn't exactly conducive to a lot of riding. But we were allowed to we, we were allowed to go and just ride around the block. There was no hassles with that. Unsupervised, of course, in the eighties. <laughs> did the world get more dangerous, or did we just start? Re- did we just start publicising what was actually happening more? Because I remember as a I kid. I think the latter. Yeah. A lot of it is the latter. Absolutely. So I, 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 you know, I, I hear on Tracy Grimshaw is telling me every night how people are out to, you know, terrify us and frighten us and whatever and I go around to those suburbs with um, with work I'm often in parts of Sydney I'm never in and I go around to some of these suburbs and I'm like well everyone seems to be really nice <laughs> seems to be having a great time out here yeah you know, well that's that's the ultimate question I mean are we are we holding you know are kids held back too much mm. you know their physical development is becoming slowed down by the amount that they're restricted I don't yeah. know yeah, it's a good question. Legislation, parks, all this sort of thing. Yeah. So I athletics wonder. was your thing when you were in, in primary school and high school? The athletics was my absolute passion. I started running around a, an athletics track at the age of eight, under eights, Dunbar Park at Ride, little grass track, and I just absolutely loved it. Jeez. I never won a race until... When you're uh, eight, it takes you ten minutes to get around it. <laughs> it's huge when you're Oh, eight. it's huge. And I was, I was tiny. I had this, like, scrawny little egg beater running style. My legs were, like, popping out, like, all directions and I couldn't control. I had no muscles whatsoever. I couldn't control myself. And um, I was a bit of a battler, you know, to be honest. That's a good word for it. I was born backwards. So, the early days. Bum the early first. days, bum first, yep. You were born bum first. Yeah, entered the world bum first. <laughs> So which, let's be honest though, let's be honest, which up until, well, it's probably still a pretty dangerous way to come into the world. That's a, you know, it can be. Yeah, I scared the crap out of my mum and dad. Yeah. But I think it was, um, it was a good start. Like, you know, I didn't have anything easy from early on. And whether you call that you know, a metaphorical mm. start or whether it was actually something that was, became ingrained. I'm not sure, but <laughs> from then on, I was I was but, a fighter. But your folks were uh, your folks were the the, uh, the taxi service on the weekends. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm one of five, so holy moly! It was not a taxi service. It was a Excel spreadsheet, or back in the days, two lots of A4 paper and a biro on a Friday afternoon to plot out the. 17 activities with five children and one car and the carpooling and the dropping off here and there. And it was, it was an operation. Five it was children extraordinary. Is, five children is more than one car. What kind of car have you got? Oh, it was a, 
you know, growing up in the 80s and the early 90s, it was a Toyota Tarago. Oh, right, so you had the Ragi. Okay. <laughs> the Rago. At least yeah. you had the Ragi because, yeah, we had the, we had the Mitsubishi L300. Mm. I'm one of four boys and our grandma lived with us, so there was uh, seven of us. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that spreadsheet, boy. Well, we've only got one and even then on the weekends, uh, there's a lot of talk about who's going what where. And... But back then, you know, it was... It was such a community, like we, we'd we all pitch in and help each other out and there was carpooling and there was, you know, the families got together and made it happen. Yeah. So Little Athletics was, um, most of my other siblings did it for, for a while until they got sick of it and, and chucked it in. But a lot of the time it was a, a family affair going out there and I remember at the age of 10, my sister was born, my younger sister who's nine years younger. And I was so intent on making it at 8am for the warm-up because I thought my performance was suffering, you know, at the age of nine and a half because I wasn't getting there early enough for my warm-up. So the next weekend <clears throat> I woke up half an hour earlier and I made sure that I packed the car myself. So the little 10-year-old me is running around organising the family and packing up the newborn just so that we could get there on time. Oh, I've got an absolutely vivid memory of that. Hilarious. <laughs> do you still do that kind of organisational thing? Do you still have yep. that in you? It's an asset for an athlete. Absolutely, yeah. And I had to. I think it, it helped me get through school and study and balancing sport and yeah and, uh, and study How at, does that at a high help? level. Because we've only uh, – Gigi just started high school this year, so she's – on the other side of the new year, she'll be 13. So she's just finishing grade seven this year. So I'm just thinking, when you as a kid, how do you see balancing that amount of extracurricular activity versus your study? Like, how did you manage it? I'm asking as a, as a step-parent, <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, oh, it's, a, great, it's a great question. And uh, I think there's a lot, it's a, probably a little bit harder these days, perhaps with, um, with, it may be increased pressure at school with kids, I'm not sure, but I um, I used to train every day after school and one of my coaches was based out at ES Marksfield and I grew up in Eastwood, which is in the middle of Sydney. And so I used to have to catch a bus and train and go over the other side of Sydney and sometimes wouldn't get home till nine o'clock. And I think, I think it's great for kids uh, going through high school to have that extracurricular activity they spend so much time at school the last thing that they should be doing is coming home and sitting down again and studying for two hours you know there is so much to be learnt from the discipline um, the capacity to have to be um, agile and flexible in your thought processes in your you know strategies all there are so many underrated things that are developed in sport um, that you, you might not see straight away in, in the straight-up intelligence tests, but what becomes ingrained as you do it, you know, throughout the teenage years is absolutely priceless. And the physical literacy that comes along with that in learning, feeling, understanding your body, learning how to be fit, stay fit, um, coordinate your body through those pivotal development years. And I'm probably tapping into a little bit of my... 
I guess, health background, physio knowledge here when I'm talking, but it's all one in the same. Well, you, you're looking my, back My on, experience, yeah. My but you're able to now uh, verbalise your experience. Absolutely. Uh, through what you were, looking back at what happened when you were 15, 16, you're able to go, oh, that's what I was doing. Int- yeah. Physical literacy, that's a really interesting concept. I've Absolutely. not heard of it before. Yeah. So the ability to know and understand your body and understand the impact of what, what you do with your body in space and, and how to how to take your body to, you know, ex- its, its limits, essentially. Um, or not even its limits, but how to, how to exercise, how to understand movement, how to implicate movement. Um, and a lot of kids, if they're too spoon-fed at school just with school-driven activities or just with um, structured activities that they're not choosing to do themselves or have to um, pull out their own motivation, then once they leave school... They, they drop it all together because it's always externally motivated. Um, so speaking from my, my background and my experience, it was it just all it was an internal drive. It came from my thirst and my um, you know innate passion to want to exhaust every capacity of my human body to become an athlete. Um, and despite whether or not I ha- you know, developed and turned into an elite athlete, regardless of that, I think having those teenage years and fundamentally learning that physical literacy and being able to become fit and strong and stay fit and strong, that's a skill for life that so many teenage girls, particularly teenage girls, are missing these days. And I think it's really sad. Besides um, you working so hard uh, as an athlete when you're in, pri- in uh, high school, you also, you also worked very hard as a student, didn't you? You did really well in high school. Well, that was by, I don't want to say, I don't want to say by accident, but I, su- I surprised myself and surprised my father because my father was a real academic. And, uh, and I went through a stage where <laughs> when I was in about year eight and I really loved the farm and I wanted to go to ag school and just become a farmer, like loved everything about cows and farms and and it was just a stage but dad sat me down and said, look, you know, do whatever you want but get, a, get yourself a degree because that's forever and I'll never forget that conversation. And I ended up enjoying, I had great teachers and I ended up, I think the discipline that I had through my, through my sporting passion drove me to be very resourceful with the time that I had um, and I found ways to I had to be highly organized with the time that I was spending on the running track and you know on transport and cars that I had to just use every moment at school I had to use every moment while I was sitting on the train I had to use every moment on the weekend and the ability to be opportunistic with time I think is uh, is a skill that I developed and then I was able to to really, you know, put the work in. But I I wouldn't say – I would say that it was just effort reward. I just I, – I put in a lot of work and a lot of hours and but you'd seen surprised that, myself. You'd seen that through – you'd seen that through athletics. You'd seen if I work this hard, there's this result, but if I work this hard, there's a potential of this result. And you transferred that out into your academic I think they both – they were both feeding back on each other. The harder I worked at athletics, 
the better I got it in athletics. And then the harder I worked at school, the better I got at school. So I was, you know, the, the older I got through, through the, those ages of, of 16, 17, 18, uh, well, I finished school when I was 17, 16, 17. And, yeah, by the time I finished year 12, I was just, I was a different person to who I was in year eight. I was, well, yeah, I'll be, obviously. Hopefully. <laughs> if you're still running around, I, I was pretty much but the same But academically, person. you yeah, know, right. I was, it was chalk and cheese. You, you mentioned something, because I, I um, in Brisbane, I commute uh, with a train and a folding bicycle. That's the, the Nether- I know, I've seen your, I'm so my, impressed. My Instagrams, well, the Netherlands has a lot to answer for. Uh, as far as the structure of the world goes right now, you know, political and economic structure set up in the 1600s about you know, trade that they invented anyway. Um, but the Netherlands also really ruined me as far as uh, getting around metropolises and what to expect from a, from a metropolis and from a, a developed country. Um, the amount of people who I met in the Netherlands that have never owned a car and never will own a car and just get about on bicycles and foldies, I was like... It's if, pretty extraordinary, isn't oh it? Oh, my God. And that... We have so much to learn from the European the, countries. Yeah, that, that the world didn't open up and swallow them whole and that their economy didn't fall in the arse because they don't have a massive, you know, car, um, you know, market. There's other things that people spend money on that aren't cars. Anyway, so, yeah, I take my little foldie and I stand on the bike and sometimes uh, if I finish work late, bear in mind I start at five... Um, so if I finish work late, I take the train home with the school kids. There's no school kids doing their homework on the train, Rachel. Every single one of them <laughs> is on a phone. That's what I'm saying. Like if, if a kid has spare time now that I see, um, and bear in mind my sample size is the train carriage I'm in and my survey is as far as I can see, and I don't know what they're doing with their days, but there's no kid with their textbook open on the train. Every kid's replying Snapchats. Replying, mm. I'm just sounding like a curmudgeonly old man now, aren't I? I know, and I probably <laughs> so. <laughs> Sorry. But it does bother me, you know. It's like Every you... young teenager in Australia is just going to hate me, right? <laughs> no, look, I, I think, you know, there's, there's balance with everything and I think balance is, is attainable or, you know, integrating yeah. the facets of your life and you can't strip away the social life and you can't change what is, right? Yeah. we just got to work with it. Yeah. Um, but having having the having the sport and the physical the extracurricular, I think I don't I don't think that that should be um, turned down or taken away just because there's a higher importance on on school age academics. Yeah, absolutely not. Because the lessons that you learn, you talk to any any person who's gone through their teenage years doing doing sport every day after school, and they'll say the same thing. What you develop from that is often you can't measure it, but it's it's mm. priceless. I was so uh, you're not the first you know athlete I've had here on the show. Um, in fact, you're my you're my first female Olympian that really? I've had on this show. Yes, just exciting. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm very honoured. There's been a well. There's been a few male Olympians, but. It's nothing special because blokes are blokes and the world is built for them. Am I, am I different so far? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Um, so athletics, was it ever a thing that you looked to 
you know, beyond little athletics. I mean, she dedicated so much time to it, you know, had so much success in it. Was it something that you thought, you know what, I could take this beyond the high school, I could take this into, you know, university maybe and start one day wear a jersey? Was it that kind of well, success? It, 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 it was. I, I still kept doing athletics throughout university and then I got really disheartened because I was beating my head against a brick wall. I wasn't, I wasn't innately built to be a speed and power athlete and that's what I... By the, by the time I finished university, I did an applied science degree in physiotherapy. So I learnt on the sideline through my studies, I learnt a lot about the human body. I learnt about every single body system in the body, energy systems, physiology, anatomy, everything. And I realised that I'm not physiologically suited to be a top-level track and field track athlete. And that was the bottom line. I had every other asset to be a top athlete. I knew that within, within me. And I had that, you know, indomitable desire, the drive. But I was barking up the wrong tree. What was that so, day like that you... That it, was it a quick thing or did it dawn on you slowly? It, it, it grumbled, yeah. It dawned on me slowly. But then I, I ended up putting a lot more emphasis on my career and once I graduated and I used my networks within sport to, you know, I started working, um, you know, the sports institutes um, with, you know, school kids with rowing programs and school kids with football programs and Sydney Swans and... As a physio? Yeah, yeah, as a physio. So I had some really, really good mentors and I did a bit of work with Australian polo players and I kept it quite diverse but... I thought, or well, maybe I can just fill the void with being an Olympic physio. Um, so that was the path that I went down and I was still keeping fit and, and trying, to, trying to run and I thought maybe I'll step it up and do middle distance running. And then, of course, got injured. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, I, a rower came into my life, a male rower who had been to the Olympics twice, world champion. And... He convinced me to jump in a boat and have a row. So I did. And I ended up rowing for a year. I raced and then uh, down at Mossman Rowing Club. And that was, that was probably, you know, the ignition. That really ignited the fire. It made me realise that I was absolutely more an endurance athlete. And it gave me the skills and confidence, the fact that I could transfer my skills and ability and hard work ethic and drive and all of those non-measurable assets and put them into something else which wasn't athletics so I had a new lease of life I was thought wow this is amazing but then after the year I realized you know actually it's going to take 10 years to refine the skill of rowing to become an Olympian and so I uh, so I left the rowing behind but in that, I became highly skilled as a rowing physio. <laughs> so you can see that the lines keep crossing yeah. over and there's, there's conversations and convolutions of what's happening here. And I'm now physioing for the Australian rowing team. And this is 2007. I've been a physio for, this is my fourth year graduated. And I'm 25 
or just turned 25 and I go down to Canberra and start working with, you know, the world's, some of the world's best or Australia's best athletes and best rowers, travelled to Europe, which opened up my eyes even further and uh, worked with the Australian rowing team in, for a few months in Europe in 2007, did the world championships with them. And that was when the penny dropped. That's when I really knew that I was on the wrong side of the fence. What's the penny drop moment? The penny When you said, I'm on the wrong side of the fence. This was told to me. Um, I was in Switzerland. <laughs> I went down after the rowing trip finished. I had three days before my flight home and I went down to the lakes in Switzerland, Interlaken, and randomly... Shit view down there. Oh, terrible. <laughs> And this was one of my – I'd been to Europe once before, but, uh, you know, my eyes were just – I was just in yeah. awe. Switzerland's So glorious. I don't know if it was the Swiss air possibly had something to do with it, the mm. mountain air. But nonetheless, I rented a mountain bike and I rode – I just took myself off for the day and just got lost riding around this lake. I stopped and I put the bike on the side of the lake, laid on the grass, looked up at the sky – and that was the moment. And I just said, I am going to change my life. I know I need to find my sport. I need to find my perfect match. I need to go after it now. It's now or never because I was 25. And I knew that it was either cycling or triathlon because running was out of the question, rowing was out of the question, and it needed to be an endurance sport and it needed to be a sport that was suited to advantages of, you know, power to weight and sort of effort reward. So I came home, was up late, jet lagged, and I Googled Australian women's cycling talent transfer programs just to see what might be out there. This is for talent transport, you think, like how could we get athletes from one discipline and move them over to another? Yeah, because okay. I'd heard there was one guy, you know, and I, I sort of knew that there were things happening in that space that the Australian Sports Commission were doing, running a few of these programs. And there was a guy that I met in Europe who was a rower who'd gone to cycling. You know, he popped up at one of the rowing meets in his cycling gear and I thought that was that was pretty cool. So, so I Googled and... Um, the first Google search result, I'm not kidding you, came up, South Australian Sports Institute, women aged 18 to 25, endurance sports, looking to transfer to another sport, recruiting now, apply here. And I nearly fell off my chair, for one. Then I got to work and did my application. Three weeks later... That night? That night, straight wow. away. That night, I and then I booked my flights to Adelaide. I flew down, I did the physiology testing, I talked to the coaches, I flew back to Germany to do the world championships with rowing, training, running up and down the hotel stairwell for the second part of the, <laughs> the test and came back to Adelaide, did the final round of the testing, spoke to the head coach down there and he said, oh, you know, we think you might have something to work with and that was it. Then I found a place to live. And two weeks later, I moved down to Adelaide. So we think you might have something to work with was you were on the team or...? It wasn't a team. Look, it was just a... It was a coaching program okay. for Adelaide girls. And they sort of thought, well, yeah, you can come if you want, but you have to move here. I don't know. Right. You know. And I thought... I think they were... 
you know, just it's, didn't it's want me to think that I was getting something more than, you know, maybe some gym access and a cycling coach. It's not a paid gig either, is it? Oh, God, no. No. So you're, what, trying to make money down in Adelaide? So I quit my job in Sydney. I, I, I sold all my furniture. I put my things on a truck and moved to Adelaide and got a part-time job down there. Stripped everything back so that I was paying a lot less rent. There was yeah. no tolls. There was no... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Fuel costs because Adelaide's so small. And I didn't, I, you know, I stopped spending money on things that non-athletes spend money on. <laughs> and, oh. and, I, and I just worked and I could afford to live working 15 hours a week instead of 30. Right. And that was the game changer. If I hadn't have moved, scaled back, downsized, flipped my mentality of what life was about and emphasis on priority and uh, you know what I prioritized to spend my money on and spend my time on then you know it wouldn't have happened so there in that moment by the lake in Switzerland you're looking up at the sky was it one moment to the next was it a gradual realization was it a oh here's an idea how did the thought come into your head there'd been conversations in the background with some physiologists and my my physio colleague and you know, I'd, I'd been bouncing around some thoughts, you know, for the last, you know, probably 12 months beforehand and also talking. I was a fly on the wall with all my athletes, you know, just watching, learning, which was extraordinary. And I think it was a, a summation of all of those conversations of my gut instinct, those feelings and the time of my life where I was at. And I just felt, yeah, I felt like I was at, at crossroads and I needed to make a decision. I didn't know what, you know, I didn't have anything concrete to say, okay, I'm going to go and go to this program, but I just knew there was something, there had to be something, there had to be a way. It really was a, a leap and the net will be there. Absolutely. Yeah. Call it, call it faith, call it just following your, your gut instinct, whatever. But it was, it was a moment where you, you ask yourself, the deeper questions of who am I and what do I want? What am I, what's my purpose? What's my deep innate purpose in life? And I've been a big thinker ever since I was young, you know, always trying to follow my passion, follow my heart. In fact, <laughs> my mother laughs at me because when I was four years old, I ran in from the backyard, you know, I'd been up exploring, climbing trees or whatever. 
I ran in and said, Mum, why am I here? <laughs> oh, poor mother. She's like, oh, geez, we've got this. Philosophist. This question is this question is four two, years old. Twenty years bit early. Intense, twenty years early. <laughs> so yeah, it was Good a journey. Question. It was a journey. Twenty years later, that I was ultimately answering. So what was the uh, what was the answer by the lake there? What's the purpose? To be a world class athlete. Right. Yeah, I knew. I I really. I didn't know how, like I didn't know what avenue I was going to take next, but I knew that I was going to take the step to find it. When you're down in Adelaide and you, so you're a distinctly non-cyclist at this point, turning up into this world of people who have done nothing but um, club meets and track meets and, you know, racing criterions every weekend and suddenly there's all these people who have got their body positioning down, they know how to tune their bike, they know how to get their bike to do what they want, they know how to ride in a group, they know how to all these things. What was the learning curve like once you got around that scene? <laughs> Hilarious. I turned up to my first group ride with a visor on my helmet. Nobody told me not to wear, like, short, you know, pants and my shorts were far too short. My socks were far too short. I had grey shoes and I still had the reflectors on my wheels. So yeah. I was the epitome of what we call a Hubbard. <laughs> You're going to have to explain that for people who aren't cyclists. Well, I was a novice. And in cycling there are, you know, it's born and bred a European sport and they're, you know, quite stylish and there are these, you know, make-believe sort of set of rules, which I don't live by, just, no. you know, rule just five, so you know. Rule five can go and get fucked. Yeah. I've got no time for rule five. No. I'll have a big be and I don't care. I'm thirsty. <laughs> if you're fast, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but there are some, you know, rules of faux pas especially in regards to style with cycling, and I think I broke every one of them. So it was a, from that regard, it was a, a steep learning curve. Um, the skills, the bunch riding, like getting left behind at every traffic light, every roundabout, um, being able to just manage my bike with people, um, that was huge. I broke for probably four helmets in the first 18 months, two years from crashes, um, I had numerous amounts of s episodes of skin off and hitting my head and, yeah, it, it, was, it was steep. <laughs> Saddle sores, I won't go there. <laughs> but, you know, it, I went from zero, I went from zero to doing... 400 kilometres a week. Wow. So the thing is that I knew how to be an athlete. I knew how to um, channel my energy. I knew how to live the life as an athlete and I had all the desire there. I just had to, <laughs> I just had to do the physical work. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing the whole time you're just scoping everyone else out and saying, okay, so when they go around the corner that way, the other pedal is down. All right, I'll do that next time. Was that sort of thing? That was the biggest challenge. 
it was the biggest challenge to fast track the skills. Mm. And anyone who's been on a road bike for the first time, it's, it's scary. The wheels are skinny. It's a flighty thing too. It'll turn very quickly. Well, you know, you remember the feeling. Oh, yeah. I, and I, know, I remember the feeling of coming off them. <laughs> it's not nice. No, it's not nice. Thankfully, I'm, I'm mostly healed. But there's, you know, I but can then, tell you when it's going to rain, my thumb starts to yeah. hurt. <laughs> but then, mate, you know, I, and I, the, the other funny thing was I learnt to ride a bike in Adelaide and it, it was actually a drought. So I never rode in the wet. Oh, yeah. And as soon as it rained, then it was, oh, jeez. <laughs> but the whole time you've definitely got, even though you, what you lacked in, in bike handling and, and being able to deal, because it's essentially, it's, if you're in a, think of when you see those giant pelotons of, of cyclists go past on the TV and there's like 300 people elbow to elbow going at 60 k's an hour down a, down a mountain, you're just kind of hoping that everyone has a similar level of bike handling to you do and that everyone will react in a predictable way. When you've got someone on a group ride that is, I guess, not as comfortable on that ride, me, I, <laughs> I tend to just stay back. Because I'm like, if, if I make a wrong move, I'm going to take everyone down with me and I don't want to do That's that. That's the thing. You've got to know your limits. Yeah. And I think there's a, a few people who start riding and perhaps they don't know their limits and they try to do things just to keep up with other people and... Yeah, I think that probably needs to be just chilled out a little bit yeah. in, in bunch rides. And, and I'm always, I'm probably, you know, a very cautious rider and, um, yeah, and I don't like to push my limits of where I, I don't feel comfortable. So the biggest challenge for me was overcoming my fear of, of descending and I really had to work really, really hard at that. Um, what was it when you were descending that was holding you back? Just the fear of the uncontrolled and, and, and I guess I, I you know, because the, the skills were all so fast-tracked from 2000 and, you know, just jumping on a bike in 2008 to starting to race in Europe in 2010. Um, it's not a lot of time and I, I was, I've always been afraid of um, going fast out of control when I don't feel like I have the skills to, to control it, plus a few crashes that, you know, that always sets you back mentally. Um, yeah, just fear. And it's real fear too. I mean, cycling's dangerous if you're not wearing a lot of clothing. Nope. My buddy Kai used to uh, say to me um, when I would, I would ride in when I lived in Los Angeles, so I don't miss pretty much anything about living in America except easy access to mountains, which was... 20 minutes ride from my house. Well, that's what Adelaide had. In Venice, I was yeah. one traffic light and I'm up in the Adelaide Hills, McLarenvale, yeah. Barossa. I mean, everybody probably recognises those names. Yeah, but they're beautiful, for hilly, wine drinking. hilly places. But my friend Kai would say, mate, just get a motorcycle. I was like, what do you mean? I told my mum I would never get one. Mum was a doctor and she worked in trauma wards. She goes, listen, you're riding down these hills at the same speeds that I ride down these hills without a motor and without any of the protective gear. So come on. <laughs> it's actually safer if you ride a motorcycle. But I think about how fast some of the, I mean, I, sh I shudder when I think about, I found myself um, in Utah going down hills and just kind of feathering my brakes to see if they would do anything. And they don't. And you go, well, okay, well, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've got to talk to your mechanic. <laughs> but you know, when you're, when you're riding kind of slower and you kind of feather your brakes, but you can feel the deceleration fairly rapidly. But 
But when, like, particularly descending in Utah, when I started, I know I don't go that fast, but when I was getting up around, you know, 75, 80 k's an hour coming down a hill and then you start feathering your brakes just to, just to tap them to see just what's to happening. Just to tap them. And you watch, the, you watch the speedo kind of barely move. You think, wow, I really better plan my... <laughs> slow before slowing down that before that corner way back up the hill here you know you don't laugh on. though planning the exit strategy is actually not a bad idea yeah at some of our um national camps we actually did like tuck and roll training wow to for when you come off the bike yeah wow that's great not really helpful when you're dealing with like motorcycle barricades that right at the side of the road. No, no. You got can hey, I tucked and I rolled into the barricade. Uh, <laughs> let's change the topic. Uh, well, look, there's two kinds of cyclists. There's cyclists um, that have crashed and those that haven't yet. That's right. And look, you know, um, there was a cornerstone in my career, and that was my Stelvio crash. And I, I don't talk about it a lot, but it was it was a make or break. And I was descending at 65k an hour. I had probably heated up my brakes too much by feathering them on the 26-kilometre descent. And my front wheel blew out and my face hit the road. <clears throat> I fractured my jaw. I was, I had, I was unrecognisable, facial injuries, and spent a week in Innsbruck. In hospital, I had surgery to fix my face. My teeth were missing, um, and it was one of those moments where I really had to dig deep and ask myself, "What am I doing? Why am I here? What am I doing? Why did I start this? And do I want to continue?" And I was alone. Like the the national team camp that I was on, they had they'd moved on, and I was in the hospital by myself. So it was a pretty challenging, pretty challenging time, um, but I started to I decided that oh, this is really what I wanted and I'd already come this far I started to walk the stairs and just get back on my feet to start the rehabilitation and in that stairwell I stopped after the first flight of stairs and there was a platform and I looked out this, this tiny window in the stairwell and I saw the Olympic rings <laughs> <laughs> the ski jump was over on the hill, the distant hill, the Olympic ski jump with the Olympic rings above it in Innsbruck. And every level of stairs that I went up, I stopped and I could watch the Olympic rings and I saw them and I stared at those Olympic rings for that week doing stair reps in the stairwell. The nurses thought I was crazy. But that's, that, was my, that was the first step to the rest of my career. Yeah. When they make the movie... You'll be looking at the window, <laughs> and that's when the da, 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 music will kick in. There yeah, might as well be, hey? As you see Lights the rings, and music, and, and you, but you know, there's your dream. There it is, right there. There it is. And stairs helped you get in the. I guess stairs will help you get back on the track. You know, yeah, get back in the stairwell. So Everyone. you know, crashes, adversity, getting shot down, getting you know, talk to the hand, whatever it might be, that adversity. But you know, it's resilience that. Is resilience, but also answering that core question of who am I? Not everyone's going to be getting on a bicycle and riding up a mountain and coming down a mountain. Not everyone's going to go eh, Olympics, but everyone's got everything's relative, right? Everyone, everyone's got a thing that they might see as insurmountable, but that's the thing they want to do. What, what, 
have you learned about resilience that could perhaps help people you know find that whether it be it might it might be i'm going to have enough money by this time next year to take everyone to bali you know i'm going to have a family holiday uh, as good as your grandparents caravan park was this time i want to take everyone to noosa doa right mm. like uh, and that's their essentially that's their olympics because they've got to sacrifice through the year and they've got to do things to save that kind of money what have you learned about resiliency you could possibly share about how to you know how to get more of it or how to kind of channel it into your life yeah it's a good question i think it's got to start with know thyself you know the 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 ancient socrates you know know thyself if you don't know who you truly are and what your passion and purpose is you can't you don't have a rock solid foundation for that resilience to grow secondly you have to believe that results come after perseverance you know my mantra after that became the latin phrase Guta kavat lapidum. Constant, and it translates into constant, you know, the constant stream and dripping of water. It doesn't have to be a strong stream of water, but the constant dripping, the constant tapping away, wears away the stone. Or persistence prevails. So you can't just say, like, guns blazing, I'm going to be resilient, you know. It's, it's got it's to come naturally and it, and it is sometimes a slow process. It starts with a decision, but it, then it also requires just constant, persistent work. And you ask anybody who's come through adversity or who's been resilient and then come out the other end, you know, in inverted commas, successful or achieving their goal, and they'll all say the same thing. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens through being sure of yourself, having a plan and a process, working hard, and embracing all those little pieces along the way, little little journeys and the little successes. What is it within you that every time every time you've you know talked about this, like what is it within you? I'll, I'll give you my example. In that, I was eight, and um, I stood on stage at a school play or whatever it was. I don't remember, and I got a laugh out of the crowd. And at that moment, I was like, uh-huh. oh. It's this. This yes. is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing I have to do. And that's all I've chased my whole life. So what is the thing that you were looking to find that you tried in athletics, it wasn't there. You tried in rowing in the, in the boat, it wasn't there. You tried in the physio table, it wasn't there. What was the thing you were chasing? Athletic excellence. I have, you know, just this deep innate desire for athletic excellence. I didn't really care what it was. You know, it could have been triathlon. Measured against yourself, measured against other people. Is it your you measured and your against body? The world. You against you and your body trying no, to become wanted... the most ex- successful form that you can possibly transition into. Yes, but take that one step higher and wear a green and gold uniform. Right. I had the green and gold in my set in my sights. I ha- I don't think I, I wasn't a very normal kid. You know, I had posters of. I don't think anybody knew who Debbie Flintoff King was when they were 10, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> she, won a, she won an Olympic gold medal for the 400-metre hurdles, which was quite extraordinary. And I had that poster on my bedroom wall for my whole teenage years. And, you know, they were my rock stars. I, I have my earliest memories of television were watching the Olympics. 
in fact, we didn't have a TV and except for the Olympics. It just wasn't in our house. Right. My so parents were like that. It was green and gold. It was to be an athlete on the world stage competing for Australia. But what's the feeling that you were hoping to get from that? What was it that you didn't have yet that you wanted to find when you did it? For me, I'll just try to explain. Like for me, when I'm on the mic, when I'm on radio, when I'm on the telly, I am at peace. I'm at my most peaceful. And that's what I chase down. I chase down that beautiful moment when there's this big crew of 50, 60, 80 people all working on this moment and and then the camera goes live and then you there, there you are, the, all of you just working together in sync. It's like 10 rowing boats all at once because you're all lockstep with each other. Yeah. And it's in those tiny little brief moments. Like surfers can win the world championship on a 12-second ride. All right, mm. It's not their entire career. A golfer wins a championship on one, like less than, two, less than a second of a shot. All right, But it's those moments, those moments that you chase and chase and chase. And so that's what it is for me. That's what I constantly search for. For you, what was the feeling you were looking for by wearing this green and gold jersey? It's that moment of pure bliss when you're not even thinking and you're in a race or you're in a performance and you're in that zone, you're in the flow, you're absolutely in the flow state. And I, you know, it doesn't come around every single race and you have to put your, your mind, body and your soul in alignment to be able to get into that space but the 2012 World Championships was probably my best memory of just being completely, um, completely in the zone, completely in flow and did not feel pain. It's extraordinary. You, you think back and, and people say, oh, what was it like, you know, attacking Marianne Voss on the Cowberg at the final lap of the World Championships? And I say, well, I, I didn't think. It was, you know, it becomes autonomous, and when you're in that, you're in that state, you just let every innate desire just flow through your actions, and you don't think, and it's beautiful. And I had that, you know, in the 2014 World Championships when I attacked and, and went solo to help our team member Tiffany Cromwell. I had it in the 2015 World Championships last year in Richmond when I had an, another solo breakaway and was in the, in the breakaway until two kilometres to go. It's, it's that untouchable feeling that so many athletes can report and, rec you know, speak about it afterwards, but it's, it's a really hard thing to describe. It's, it's bliss. It's when uh, the... It's, I've heard it described, the flow state you describe, I've heard it described as when... Uh, our conscious brain thinks something like 20,000 times slower than our unconscious brain. But when our unconscious brain takes over, like when you said when things become autonomous, an example would be reversing out of the driveway in a brand new car the day after you get your peas, all right? You have everything on high alert. You're checking every mirror. You're trying to, you know, do the clutch right, you're trying to think of 77 different things so you don't scrape the car as you go out the driveway to reverse. Fast forward eight years when you've done that a few thousand times, you're having a phone conversation while fiddling with the stereo doing the same thing because all of those actions are automatic. All right? Great and, example. And you're yeah. left, the rest of your brain is left to do other things. 
So you're talking about putting in the time and the effort and, and getting your body to a state where the body just goes, oh, I know what to do here. You, you're fine. You do your thing. And, and, and your, your body's taking care of, of all these things that otherwise take conscious effort to do because you've pushed through those stages of, of, of effort and pain and, and, you know, feeling your body switch fuel supplies, you know, feeling the Absolutely. running out of glycogen, knowing what that feels like, knowing, oh, okay, this is just the wall. I know the wall. The wall's good, you know. Embracing hey, honey, it. Welcome back. Oh, this is Frank, by the way. This is our dog. Hi, Frankie. He's an excited, he's an excited young guy. He just turned one. He's super happy to be here. <laughs> happy birthday, Frankie. Um, yeah, but I think, I think um, it's, it took me a long time to get there because I was such a foreigner to cycling. Yeah. And I was so clunky and, you know, thinking about the clutch and the accelerator and the, and the brakes and the, and the indicators and the hazard light, you know, I had no idea how to race. I didn't know how to ride a bike when I started cycling. Being in an elite sport that has so many people competing in it, particularly when you're um, talking about, for example, the European cycling season, and there's so many teams, so many riders on so many teams, just, this, just mathematically, you are going to have more days by the end of your career, there'll be more times you've lost than the times you've won. That's just it. You know, if there's 100 races, you're not going to win 100 races. If there's 100 races, you, you might win two. And they're the ones everyone goes, fuck yeah, you did it, you did it, you did it. So I'm, I'm guessing you've, you've learned more about, what have you learned about what it is to not win a race rather than what it is to win a race? Because I'm guessing if by dealing with the not winning is how it defines you, right? Absolutely. Uh, I, there's not a day that I don't learn. <laughs> well, I, guess I'm, I guess I'm, I always raise the bar and I'm always hard on myself, so I'm always learning mm-hmm. because I'm, how can I do that? How can I have done that better? How can I do this better? Um, and I guess that's the nature of an elite athlete and that's the way that we're wired the way we are. You know, we're type A high achievers and we don't settle for second best. But... The process of all of those knockbacks and all of those crashes and all of those injuries and all of those situations where I've had to dig deep and, and, and you know, um, work on using that enormous resilience muscle has, you know, has taught me far more than the times that I've stood on the podium with my arms in the air. And the only reason that I got to the point where I stood on the podium with my arms in the air was through all those lessons of of failure and how can I do that better. So I think, you know, it's all, it's all part of the process of refining, you know, your knowledge and your skill and your craft is by learning from the not-so-good times. And it's so frustrating <laughs> because, of course, you want to win all the time. I actually didn't really – I didn't win my first race until – my first big race uh, until the beginning of last year, the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. Wow. That was my first race win. And that was seven years after you started? Yep. There are so many variables in cycling, in road racing – that most people don't understand. It's not just A to B, the, the quickest person wins. You know, there are so many variables and you have to become tactically smart mm. um, 
it takes years of, of refinement to, to make it happen. And then everything has to come together on the day. And since then, I've had two, two big European wins. Um, but, yeah, like, it's, it's not the most rewarding... <laughs> <laughs> not the most rewarding profession. And that's why you need to take the little wins and the little gains and embrace the the relationships along the way and and the journey because the podiums are, are as you say, they're few and far between. So what are the what are the little wins look like? They're really cool. Like sometimes you miss them if you don't if you don't pay attention and slow down. And really notice them, but the little wins are just, um, you know. For example, yesterday I had a a beautiful picnic with some family and friends over at Coogee, and I brought a jersey for my two best friends. Their their little girls are about to start school. They're five, four and a half, and I gave them each an Orica jersey. Oh wow! And a little hat and a bottle, and. They were unstoppable the rest of the afternoon. They wore them and one of them even wanted to wear it to bed last night. You know, little things like that, being able to um, share my journey with other people and watching the faces and the actions of, of young kids when you might ride beside them or say hello when you're on your bike and being a role, you know, being a role model to young girls, that's, that's huge. And it took me a long time to realise the impact that you, you can have as, a, as an athlete and particularly as a female athlete broader, on a broader community. So that's, that's one of the, you know, the small things along the way that I'm, I'm starting to really love and embrace. Uh, Gigi's down the beach right now with her friends because it's holidays and so hooray, meet you down there. Um, what can I do uh, and me and Audrey, what can we do for her as, as a, you know, people that, I don't know, how, how can we make sure this part of her athletic excitement is of best value to her? I think having a, a good balance, a good mix between <coughs> constructively pushing your body but also having fun. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, full-on high-performance organised sport but at the same time, probably something a little bit more than sitting on the beach. It's you know it's a it's a difficult question and every every young girl is every young girl is different, but I think channeling a little bit of, you know, if it's, they love being in the water then okay, let's, you know, look at 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 water sports. Um don't try and force them into a hole where they're going to be you know, where they're going to rebel against it. I guess I was lucky because I just followed something I love. But in hindsight, it, it was the wrong sport. Um, and perhaps some, if someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, well, look, maybe you should be doing this or that, maybe I, I could have, you know, had a little bit more diversity. Mm-hmm. But at school I ran around and did, you know, every sport. I think the key is for that, for that age group is to develop a love and appreciation for the extraordinary gift of the human body because it's an amazing thing. It's an extraordinary machine. And to not take it for granted, to realise that, that sport and physical activity and fitness and health and happiness and strength is all one in the same. And it's not a chore. 
to exercise and move your body. It's a beautiful thing. And it should be celebrated and it should be worked and it should be exercised. And it's okay if it hurts a little bit. Because a few hundred years ago or a few thousand years ago, that's what we had to do just to survive. So it's okay to work up a sweat. That's why we have sweat glands. That's why we have the physiology to be able to maintain our body's heat. We have an internal thermostat. You know, understanding all those types of things, I think is a, it makes a good connection rather than girls focusing on the mirror and the scales and what's on Instagram. It's actually maybe, you know, giving them the skills and knowledge to, to appreciate health and, and fitness for what it is and the connection to their bodies. People might have been listening to this and going, right, that's it, I'm not by a lake in Switzerland, but yes, I've figured, I've asked myself this question. What's the first, what's the first little step? What's the first pedal stroke someone can take <laughs> to help them in that direction? Ask yourself, what do I really want? Yeah. Ask yourself, if I was unrestricted, where would I be, what would I do? Unrestricted in terms of society norms, society shoulds. The society rules. You know, when I was 25, if I had asked my, myself that question, I would say, I've got to buy an apartment in Sydney, I've got to work on my career, I can stay fit and healthy, but that shouldn't be the priority, and, you know, I, and I've got to find a, find a husband and get married. That is the society expectation. And essentially I, I said no to that or I didn't put it up on the top of my value tree. I asked myself, what do I want? And I thought about it in a way that was unrestricted. Are you still asking yourself those questions? Are you checking in to make sure you're still on that path? Absolutely, yeah. You need to check in all the time because the minute that you're not on that path and not aligned... You, you either re-tack or you change tack. So it's a constant process of internal dialogue. You know, you need to be true to yourself. And, you know, not in a airy-fairy way, but, like, no, really, you know. And I had to ask myself that after Rio. Do I want to keep going? Like, are there other things that I want to do in life? What am I, you know, am I still really, really passionate about this do I still have things I need to achieve in sport in my cycling career so that process sometimes you know it's it's not easy and it can be ugly you know it can be really hard and you have to get away from the noise to ask yourself that question I think it's it's hard when you are absorbed in all the noise and society pressures and expectations and um you know, ex external variables that, that are all influencing our lives every day with media and everything infiltrating our lives. You have to sort of get away from that every now and then and really quieten down the, the stimulus, the stimuli coming, coming in, clear all that away and say, okay, you know, who am I, what do I want, am I on track? You've certainly thought about this a lot. <laughs> Um, um, 
when you're in the Olympic Village, everyone's there and, you know, everyone's you're just sitting there with a couple of thousand people who all have, a, you know, similar sacrifices. Do, is it, is it unrealistic to expect that athletes upon your level have thought so hard about the, 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 the purpose and, and like the in, interior dialogue that goes on with their careers as you have? I, th I think so. You know, I've I've talked a lot to, you know, athletes in in my position, and to to s sacrifice that much, to train that hard, to put your body through the processes that it has to go through. So physically, mentally, emotionally, um, what it takes to get to the Olympic level. If you if you're not doing it from a place within. If you're just doing it from like a conscious level, then I don't think you really you get to the depth of of your potential, because the the drive and the motivation to get up every day and to put your body through pain and hell, <laughs> and then say to, say no to all the other things dragging you in other directions, and saying no to the chocolate or the glass of red wine, and you know going to bed at ten o'clock, all those things. That has to be second nature and that has to come from a non-conscious decision. So, yeah, I think a lot of athletes do share that ability to check in on that, on, you know, on the emotional level to be able to have that internal dialogue with yourself. And so that's, that's what makes you go beyond your mm. physical capacity. So when you, when you check in, I mean, you're clearly in pre-season training for, for something. So what are you... What are you hoping this this next year brings you? Well, it's um it's really exciting actually. Uh, we have a um, a few new races on our calendar for next year. Um, the UCI Women's Pro Tour, um, UCI Pro Tour is is expanding. We've got a lot more races that are on the same day as the men's. Um, a lot more bigger races, which is really exciting. So for me, um, targeting some some of the April Ardennes classics, then the Giro in July and the World Championships in Norway in September. So back with, I'm um, signed again with Orica AIS, which is an amazing team, great bunch of girls um, and, you know, wonderful supportive environment. And, yeah, like it's, um, it's actually, it's going to be nice to try a few different things. You know, there are many ways to go about the periodization of your season and how you how you structure your peaks and troughs in terms of your, your training and your racing and your preparation. So it, it'll be nice to to tweak a few things and to change a few things around this year. Um, I'm going to have a slower later start so that I can be in um, in better condition for April. And yeah, I'm just I'm excited to um, to just just. just Try, you know, do a few things differently. For people who've never, you know, they're, they're aware that cycling happens because for a month uh, on SBS there's just... Le Tour. Yeah, blokes in, in Superman jerseys on bicycles and people with cowbells uh, just for hours and hours and hours and hours. For people that have perhaps never watched cycling or never, you know, seen it as a, the spectator sport, what's, like, what's a really easy, what's an easy race that they can get into and what should they look for? I think the classics are great to watch. They're very entertaining. 
um, one day races are easier to understand and, and a little bit more exciting. So something like the Tour of Flanders, which is an iconic, uh, iconic race which involves cobbled climbs and, you know, it just the most crazy Belgian fans lining the roads. Like, it's just extraordinary. That's a, that's a brilliant race to watch. And, and we're getting more and more coverage of those types of races, the, the spring classics, as, they, as we call them in cycling. And, uh, and they are just essentially that, classic races, where you can really learn the craft of cycling and watch tactics and try to understand them. They're, they're just, yeah, they're beautiful races to watch. But there are also races that have been around since as long as there's been bicycles that could do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So 18-somethings, 19-somethings, early, early, early. Early. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much history and, you know, I mean, we're, we're such a new cycling nation. I mean, it's incredibly popular now in Australia and... and Second largest participation sport in the world. It is. Yeah. Only behind soccer. And the tour is the largest sporting event in the world that happens on an annual basis. The stats are the stats are extraordinary. It is. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful sport. My favourite thing about it is that I can ride next to a twelve year old girl, or I could ride next to, you know, a seventy year old guy, and have conversations about anything and everything in the world. And not a lot of athletes can say and have the pleasure to be able to share their sport with so at such a diversity of people. Mm. When I did the, I did the, uh, the Amy Gillett, the Grand Fondo. Oh, that's the best event in Australia. Last year in September, it was freaking amazing. Yeah, uh, I remember actually. I think I tweeted at you. I was. It was wild. <laughs> but I, I reckon I passed. There was people on commuter bikes there were people on touring bikes there were i mean Gigi and audrey did the uh, the family fondo where they went out i was supposed to go just out and back but some brain surgeon uh took the u-turn mark away went and hit it and so Gigi and audrey went out like about 10 k's or something and then someone on a motorcycle just chased them down and go, what are you guys doing all the way down here there's a race coming straight at you because <laughs> they basically start from the finish oh line goodness. and go back down the course turn around and come back. They got back in time? Yeah, yeah, they got back in time. Oh, but they ended up doing well like done. 20Ks or something rather than 7. 20K, that's good effort. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was big. It was a big day. Yeah. Um, but they, they loved it. I loved it. And I loved, like, as you, as you said, riding with, um, riding with people of all different ages and getting dropped by men who have double my age. Mm. Like, I was like, I'm going to be you when I grow up. When I'm in my 80s. Tell me about like, it. I'm 42. And like there's, <laughs> you, can, you can generally tell how old someone is by their eyes, but they have sunglasses on, so it's a bit hard to tell. But you can also tell by people's hands how old they are and how big their ears are. You can kind of get an idea of how old these people are. This guy was easily, like, and he had cannons for calf muscles <laughs> and just flying up this mountain. I was like, oh, I want to be you. I want to be like, in the grannyest of granny gears trying to get up this hill. Welcome to my world, living in Tuscany. Oh, just the everyday... You know, everyday average guys, they're, mm. they're so strong. Probably because they have two-hour lunch breaks. But Well, that'll, that's also a thing. That's the other thing I also really like about cycling is that you or I can't go any day of the week and well, you might be able to because you have Sydney Sons connections, but you and I can't go around and kick a footy on the SCG on any given day and stand on the field where other people play and, you know, play in that arena. Yet you or I can go if we had the 
financial means to the bottom of any hill in Europe where they run one of these classics and go up it any day. Yeah. And the same gradients, the same, it's exactly the same. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's wild. Yeah. It's that you can test level yourself, playing field. Yeah, yeah. that you can test yourself against those places without having the restriction of, you know, if we can't get a tea time at Augusta. Fuck no. We're not going to go play golf at Royal New South Wales. Never. Mm. But we can go and... Same mountain, one mountain's yeah. my mountain's your mountain. Yeah. It's, a, yeah, it is a beautiful part of the sport. It's... Pretty good. No doubt. Well, will I see you at the Amy Gillett thing this year? No, you'll be over in... Yeah, I'm going to be... You'll be in Sweden, Norway. Where did you say the world champs were? Norway. Norway. You'll be in Norway. Yeah, our season doesn't finish until the end of September, so it's... Yeah, it's... Uh, I love that event, though. I, uh... I've only done it once, but yeah, it's a, I mean, the Great Ocean Road, to be able to ride on closed roads there, That's the big... Amy Gillett Foundation are just amazing. Yeah. Punch above the weight. They're, they're just doing extraordinary things. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Interesting bunch of uh, people that mm. are involved with it too. It's like, yeah, people, people from backgrounds that I would never have associated with that I'm like... Oh, that's interesting. Well, at least we have cycling in common. It's fascinating. <laughs> you know, I thought I find that fascinating, you know, that there's this, it's just this leveler mm. as well that um, people just that get I... Get people down into Lycra and you people that don't I know what before, happens. I would probably have terse <laughs> words with them at dinner parties is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, <laughs> but when it comes to let's keep everybody safe as we're riding bicycles... We, we all have, agree. We all agree. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm. That's a really beautiful thing. Thanks for coming on a, on a training day. When you, Thanks for having you know, me. That's all right. It's a little just break in between training sessions. Where are you, what's the training session this afternoon going to be? Training session, I just have an easy easy little ride this afternoon. So. What's an easy little ride for you? Come oh, on. Just an hour and a half. Where are you going to ride today? Well, I'm in Sydney, so I have two options. I don't like riding on Sydney roads. No, that's fine. Hence the Southern Highlands little um, burrow. So I either ride out at Olympic Park or... Centennial Park. All right. <laughs> well, I might see you out there. I'll be the slow guy. Oh, you're gonna, maybe we should go for a pedal together. Maybe. I don't know. I've got to finish organising a wedding. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to track – like I was grateful you were coming over today because it, it, it gave me respite from trying to chase, respite. Up, oh. chase, up, chase up cool room higher. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Have you got a cool room that I can – I hire? wish I did. Look, all I have is yours but I Dang don't have a cool I appreciate room. that. Give my love what to else continue. can I help you out with? Uh, I don't that's, know. that's about it. That's about it. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Unreal. I'm going to take your photo real quick, okay? Sweet. That was Rachel Nalen. Find her on Twitter at R-A-C-H-N-E-Y-L-A-N. Thank you so much for all the support on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Osher. Uh, for as little as five bucks a month, you can get access to all the exclusive episodes as they stand. I've got another one coming this week, which I'm looking forward to getting through to you. For as little as five bucks a month, you can help this show go to air. That's like, like, like a to- avocado with toast or half an avocado with toast once a month can help you listen to the show each week. The money goes to pay my audio producer who helped make the show, Andy Marr. His website is andymarr.com. My production coordinator, Haley Van Spania, and music by the exceptionally talented Toe Hider. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for indulging me at the start, guys. All right. I love you. Thanks for listening. Until we talk next week, sleep well. 
dream of beautiful things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 